0: but to give his life a ransom for many. I love that text because it has so many of the elements of the gospel. You have him here as Jesus, the Son of Man. There's his uni personality. He's called the Son of Man. He's the Son of God, but he's the Son of Man. He's the God-man, right there in that text. And he came not to be ministered to, but he came to work for us, He's our worker. He is our servant. But to minister and to give his life as a ransom. Now, that's not a victim. That means he came to purchase a ransom for many. And the little word there for is hooper. In the place of many. And when Jesus died on that cross, he was there as our substitute. Welcome to Let the Bible Speak. This is Pastor Ian Guller and we hope to do two things today. Of course, we're going to bring the gospel message from our pulpit on, well, the subject is Jesus, our high priest. We were looking at that yesterday, and we will continue that today. But also, we want to look at the subject of gambling. Here uh, in our locality, we are sandwiched between casinos. Every municipality has a casino, and of course it is ramped up as a moneymaker for the public good, but it is also a public nuisance, and it is destroying people. There are those with gambling addictions who cannot help but continue to play the wretched game until they are as poor as a church mouse. And we need God's deliverance from this curse of gambling in our country. We also think of what it's doing to the First Nations people and how addicted they are to the vice of gambling. We'll take a look at that toward the end of the program. But firstly, we're going to go to um, Luke chapter 24. The subject is Jesus, our high priest. That means that on the cross, he took our place and paid the price for our sins. Stay tuned as we go now to our pulpit from our free Presbyterian church. It was also as a mediator, because here is one now divinely equipped to mediate. Now, you know what a mediator does when there is some friction in the workplace, the (coughs) the workers go on strike, the management, they try and keep things going, and somehow they've got to fix all the problems that have come up and the offense that have been made, and the workers won't go back to work unless this happens, and the management says no, and there's a blockage. How do you resolve this? Well, you bring in a mediator. And who can that mediator be? Well, he needs to be one whom the workers trust, and they've got confidence in him. It needs also to be someone whom the management trusts, and they have confidence in him. And his work to mediate is to reconcile, bring these two opposing parties together. When our Lord Jesus died on that cross, he died as a mediator, because he was God, infinitely holy, perfect. He was also man in our nature. He was, as we're told, tempted in all points as we are without sin. He knows what temptation is. He knows what it is to live in a world of sin. And he comes as the friend of sinners. And by his sacrifice, he is now the mediator to reconcile. And he says to the Father, I will take your commandment. I will die and bear the punishment, the price to pay satisfied justice so that your law is no longer offended, that the claims of justice are satisfied, and I will die for men so that they have mercy. And on that cross, the Lord Jesus died as our priest, as our mediator. He died in that office as our man. He's our man. He was our man on the cross. He was our man when he came forth from the tomb. He was our man when he ascended into glory, when he poured out that blessing upon his own disciples. And he's our man now at the right hand of God. That's why when you pray, you use Jesus' name. That's why our prayers are made effectual, by the mediation of Christ. A priest, his office work is two things—satisfaction, sacrifice—well, that's the same thing, those two—satisfaction and sacrifice—so he may intercede. Just as the priest slew the animal, offered it on the altar, and brought the blood into the place of prayer, the priest interceded, pleaded with God. That blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat by the high priest. And sprinkling that blood, God was appeased and satisfied. And the work of atonement, reconciliation was made all by the work of a priest. Jesus does that for us now. He is in the presence of God at the right hand of God, and his blood—think on this—we're going to take the cup to remind us of that blood— We're going to take that cup with the red juice in it, and we're going to drink of that as a sign of our faith in the atoning blood of Jesus. And where is that blood now? It's in heaven. It's pleading. And Hebrews tells us that the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel had to learn that the way to heaven is by blood. We've had to learn that too, faith in the blood. And as we take that cup, to demonstrate that faith, we are showing that our hope is in that blood that now appears in God's presence, and that intercession is made for us. One more thing about the person who is our high priest, and that is that he is an eternal person. And for time, we'll go straight to Hebrews 7.16, and I want you to notice that the value of Jesus' death The virtue, the accomplishment of Jesus' death lies in the eternal nature of the person. Hebrews 7 and verse 16. Let's read it right here in our own Bibles. Who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. An endless life. Some people think that when Jesus died on the cross, that's the end of it. That's just just a one-time experience, event. It's all over. No, 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 no. The power of the cross, the power of Jesus' blood, the power of his mediation, the power of his priestly work, he is now living for us as our priest in heaven as God's right hand. That's why we don't like earthly priests. That's why it is a cop-out to try and claim to be a priest on earth, because there are no more priests on earth. Priestly work on earth is done. This table is not a sacrifice. This cup is not blood. There is no death at this table. There is no suffering at this table. There is no blood shedding at this table. All of that took place at the cross once, And it's never to be added to. If you're going to call yourself a priest, you need a sacrifice. If you're going to make it a true sacrifice, it has to be a bloody sacrifice. And so there are those, yes, in the Roman Catholic Church, and they claim that they translate the change, this very cup, into real blood and the bread into the real body of Jesus. That cuts against the finished work, it cuts against the the nature of our Lord Jesus in heaven as our priest, living in the power of an endless life. And our Lord now is fulfilling the office. This is how he satisfies our hearts. This is how he pours blessing into our lives. He speaks peace to us by his blood, by his victory, by his ministry of grace, And when you come to him in prayer, you come to him as your priest, and you thank him for the blood he shed and the sacrifice that was made, and that he sprinkles that blood for you, and he represents you before God as your mediator, and the peace flows into your heart. Your sins are gone. You're reconciled to the Father, and you have all the blessings and all the benefits that were purchased on the cross. So, our text, Christ— Christ died. We have the person. We have uh, the payment here. What an amazing payment. The payment required in his death. Christ died for us. So let's go now to the position. The position that the Lord Jesus took when he died on that cross. He died for us. Has been often put, Christ died. That's history. Christ died for us. That's doctrine. And that is the personal element of our redemption. The whole scope of the Bible flows and flows with the language of substitution. Jesus took our place. He died in our stead. Isaiah said, Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. And so the Lord Jesus died in our place for us, it says right here. Now, to be picky, and when we come to the doctrines of our salvation, we need to be picky because our eternal salvation lies on this, the word for. It can have various meanings, and there are those who object to all the doctrine of Christ's substitution, and it simply says, well, he died as the reason. For can be the reason, a because, but that's not what the word means. In the Greek language in which our New Testament was written, Over and over again, repeatedly, the word for is a little word, H-U-P-E-R, Hooper. And when the gospel of substitution is led out, the Holy Spirit, the author of this book, moved the writers to use that particular Greek term to express the doctrine of substitution— And it has the idea, not of because, not for the reason, but in the place of, in the place of. So let's look at a couple of texts here. You have Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us in our place as our substitute. He died in our stead. Matthew 20, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to give his life a ransom for many. I love that text because it has so many of the elements of the gospel. You have him here as Jesus, the Son of Man. There's his uni personality. He's called the Son of Man. He's the Son of God, but he's the Son of Man. He's the God-man, right there in that text. And he came not to be ministered to, but he came to work for us he's our worker, he is our servant, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom. Now, that's not a victim. That means he came to purchase a ransom for many. And the little word therefore is hooper, in the place of many. And when Jesus died on that cross, he was there as our substitute. It was vicarious suffering. In our place condemned He stood. Do you get that? And any person who would take the communion cup and bread and say, this is my hope, this is my faith, you must understand that Jesus took your place, not just the place of the world, not just the world of Jews, not just the general world of Gentiles, but your place, your name right there. And it was for your sins that Jesus suffered as a priest. He made himself a sacrifice, a divine sacrifice, an infinite sacrifice, so that all of your sins would be gone for all eternity. And now he's interceding for us. He died as a sacrifice for us, and now he lives at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Now, you just think, Jesus, the God-man, the mediator, praying over his own blood, his sacrifice, praying for you. Jesus praying for you. What a wonderful power that is. Now, we speak about the power of the office, He holds the office of our priest. And in the covenant of grace, Christ takes that work of prophet, priest, and the office is very powerful. I heard President Trump saying in an interview uh, that the office that he holds is very powerful as the dominant leading nation of the world. And you know just how powerful the office is. All he has to do is make a tweet, and the markets go up or fall. Nations respond with all kinds of fear and trembling. And of course, the word of the president, and it's not just the man and the billionaire that he is and the history of his own person, but it's the office. It's because he has that position. He can speak with a authority and get things done that no other in the nation can do. Christ, at the right hand of God now, holds the office of priest. Just think of it, one word, one command to the one who has given all authority in heaven and on earth. Just one word from him, and it brings the blessing, and it brings the favor of God. And remember that this is a ministry of Jesus' love. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And the Lord Jesus took this role of of Savior, sacrifice, priest, shedding his blood, to pray for us because he loves us. He loves us. And he laid down his life in demonstration of that wonderful love. I read a story of a man called Zaluchus, and he decreed that in his dominion, that anyone who was found guilty of committing adultery, that both their eyes should be put out. And before very long, his own son was charged and proven guilty of that very sin. And so all eyes were upon this king to discover how would he display justice, fulfill the law, the decree that he made himself, his self-made law, And how would he show as a father some mercy to a son? And so they were waiting for his response and reaction. As king, he decided that he would fulfill the uh, justice by having one eye of his son put out and having one eye of his own put out. And so two eyes were put out. And he also showed mercy to his son because he still had one eye to see, that was a very shrewd way to maintain justice and show mercy. Our Lord Jesus has perfected it, because he has completely stood in our place to take all the punishment, to take all the penalty and payment for sin, and to give us complete mercy our sins are forgiven, and we are set free. And so, the answer to those who are depressed and discouraged, wondering how they can be saved, is to understand what Christ accomplished at the cross, his priestly work. That priests, well, the earthly priests, they first of all offered for their own sins, and then for the sins of the people. But our Lord Jesus Being sinless, he made himself a sacrificial lamb, and his blood brings peace and grace to all of his people. His death was a ministry of reconciliation, God and man bringing opposing forces together. And so you are reconciled to God by the death of the Lord Jesus. We have now one man in the glory. He's the God-man. He is our priest, and he's our high priest, and he prays for us on the basis of his blood. We plead then the merits, the work, the value of all that Jesus accomplished. I have come to the end of my little attempt to expound the cross. I wonder, has it given you heartburn? I wonder, has this thrilled your heart? You see, as a preacher of the gospel, we're called to preach the same old story over and over. But it's the story that is old yet ever new, and it thrills the heart of the Christian as much as it does the sinner who needs to be saved. And as we get a fresh understanding of what Jesus accomplished, our hearts will burn. We take that cup with joy and gladness. We look at that bread, remembering the body that became a sacrifice for sin. And we say, thank you, Lord, and that you did it all for me. That's our conclusion, and that's our gospel. And that's our hope. And this is our thank offering unto the Lord today. If your heart's not burning, if there is no thrill in the thought that Jesus died for me, I pray God will save you. I pray that God will give you faith in his Son as the mediator the one who died as our priest, and you will be reconciled to God, not running from Him, but reconciled. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. I'm coming now to the segment on righteousness, Exalt of the Nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. today we're going to look at the vice of gambling. William Sacker listed one of the seven deadly sins as avarice, which by definition means the insatiable desire to get riches. One of the daughters of avarice, which the old writers used to mention, was gambling. And the need has not gone by for indicating the true place to which this vice belongs the desire to make money is undoubtedly at the bottom of the practice. To make money in haste without giving any equivalent for it, and this is its condemnation, but after it has grown into a habit it becomes a very complex thing. The gambler can hardly tell why he follows with such eagerness the events of the green turf and the fortunes of the green table. There is a fever in his blood which drives him on, rendering Ordinary pursuits and ordinary gains steal and making his own heart reckless and hardened. A single act of gambling has an innocent look. The first steps in a gambling career are frequently exhilarating, but the atmosphere soon becomes grimy. The associations and companionships into which it leads are demoralizing, and many a time it ends in the dock and the jail. Gambling is a big problem in Canada. The reason is that provincial governments are the real addicts. The Ontario provincial government itself raked in more than a billion dollars last year from gambling. To do so, it has done everything it can to grow gambling, including licensing more casinos, allowing ATMs and unrestricted hours of operation in them, and increasing the number of video lottery terminals, by five times. The result? The number of gamblers has soared. The Wellesley Institute of Ontario reported in 2013 that gambling is common in Ontario. The Canadian Community Health Survey shows that 66% of Ontarians have gambled within the last 12 months, and 85% of Canadians have gambled at some time in their lifetime. For most people, gambling does not significantly affect their lives and their well-being. Social, financial, and health problems arise, however, for problem gamblers. Problem gambling is often not well-defined in debates about gambling. This can lead to the assumption that unless the gambling is compulsive, it is healthy, responsible, and low-risk. Leading researchers have defined low-risk gambling as gambling no more than two to three times per month, spending less than a total of $500 to $1,000 per year, or gambling less than 1% of a gross family income. People who exceed one or more of these criteria can be described as problem gamblers. The Canadian Public Health Association defines problem gambling as a progressive disorder characterized by a continuous or periodic loss of control over gambling, B, preoccupation with gambling and money with which to gamble, C, irrational thinking, and D, continuation of the activity despite adverse consequences. In other words, you keep losing, and yet you still keep playing. Now, the answer to the problem is to seek the true riches which are in Christ. The wonderful thing is that the insatiable greed of man is answered in the hope that comes through a living faith in Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ and have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in him. The poorest Christian is richer than the wealthiest oil sheik or the king of the vastest earthly kingdom. The Holy Spirit becomes our joy of heart. He ministers to us the fullness of contentment, and satisfaction of which money is only a mocker. It's better to have a gospel-preaching church in the city than a gambling casino. It's better to have Christians living in the hope of Christ than gamblers robbing the vulnerable like vultures, damning their own souls in doing it. Judas warns us all, too, of the true outcome of gambling. He traded 30 pieces of silver for his own soul. Let us be warned today not to enter into the gambling casino or any other form of gambling, but to put our trust in the Savior in whom there is no risk, but rather in whom is eternal life, abundant life. That's the confidence of the Christian.